1: Listener discretion is advised.
2: As Truman snored lightly next to me in the bed, I ran through a list of events that had caused me alarm over the past few days. The emotional and physical stress was starting to wear me out. I was more nervous and anxious than I'd ever been. It was difficult to think rationally. The drinking, the jet lag, and the confusion I felt had messed with my mind. I kept wondering if I was overreacting or being overly sensitive. All the kind and loving things that he said to me swelled around in my head and I was searching for a glimmers of hope that my fears could be wrong and that maybe he was a great man after all. Maybe he was still someone I wanted to build a future with. He was keeping me hopeful yet confused and I was drowning in uncertainty. I got up the courage to confront Truman calmly about his rude and volatile behaviour the previous night, to both me and the taxi driver. Straight away he accused me of being abusive and manipulative. I was taken aback and caught off guard. I was manipulative? I could only manage to keep gently suggesting that his tone was too aggressive and that he should treat people with more respect. The discussion heated up and I suspect that he sensed I was on the verge of leaving and he changed tactics. He sat down in a non-threatening pose and apologized. He made excuses for his behavior and assured me that things would be different once he could sort out his stress from his illness and his new business. He made promises about our future together, saying he would come to Hong Kong as soon as he possibly could and he felt that it would only be a few months until we'd been together. Once again, he was charming, funny, and seemed to hear what I was saying, and to acknowledge my feelings. You're all that I'm looking for in a woman, he said. I wanted so badly to believe him. Perhaps I'd misjudged him. and Maybe he was being an ass because he'd been drinking. Could I have exaggerated everything in my mind? Which side of him was a real person? Could I be to blame for upsetting him? I'm not perfect, but... You make me want to be a better person, he said. Without you, I'm nothing. It's pretty normal for me to put others before me, but in this instance, not only did I consider his feelings before my own, but I could feel myself trying to please Truman and win him over. His tactics worked, and he had me right back where he wanted me in a matter of hours.
3: Instinct, confusion, second-guessing, and desire. It was all becoming too much. My mother could no longer extract truth from fiction. Truman had yet again managed to spin his version of events in a way that put him back in my mother's good books.
2: We packed up to leave the hotel and moved to a cheaper one because it was too expensive on New Year's Eve. We picked up his friend Travon, and we drove around looking for a hotel to stay in. I mentioned that I was hungry and they also said that they could eat. We arrived at a little hotel outside the city centre and Truman suggested I go in and book a room and get some food and he'd see me shortly as he had to drop Travon off and come back. I went in and I booked a cheap room and dropped off our bags. I went to the restaurant across the road and I ate alone. The feeling of loneliness and being far away from home was almost too much. I felt like I wanted to cry, but I pushed the feelings aside and I ate my lunch. Truman returned about an hour later to pick me up. He had decided that we
1: were going to drive to Liverpool. We take this few seconds off to inform you, our valued loyal listener, about the best health and fitness podcast shows. Enjoy the show.
3: Gaslighting is a word you may have come across before. It evokes the image of a woman slowly being driven mad by the gradual disintegration of truth in a relationship. She can no longer know for sure what's true and what isn't, and she eventually begins to question her own reality. It comes from a film of the same name made in 1944. In the film, Ingrid Bergman's character is slowly manipulated by her husband, played by Gary Boyer, into believing she's going insane. It's clear to me that the parallels between this type of psychological abuse and what was going on with my mother are strong, but the events depicted in the film are almost uncanny. In the film's 1944 adaptation, Bergman's character Paula marries... Boyer's Gregory after a whirlwind two-week romance. Paula was raised by her aunt, a famous opera singer, who was murdered in her London townhouse when Paula was nine years old. The murderer escaped, yet was unable to find the precious jewellery he was looking for. Later, when Paula is living in Italy and training to be an opera singer herself, she meets and quickly marries Gregory, who then convinces her to move back to London and live in her aunt's townhouse, despite her having no friends or contacts there. Paula discovers a letter addressed to her aunt by a man named Sergius Bauer. Her husband reacts violently to the discovery. However, he dismisses and minimizes his outburst as due to feeling frustrated. Things start to become more and more bizarre. Precious items go missing, and Gregory convinces Paula she's a kleptomaniac. All her aunt's belongings are stored in the attic, And she hears footsteps moving up there, but Gregory tells her she's imagining things. She notices the gaslights dim and brighten again in the house, and he tells her it isn't true, that she's making it all up in her head. He isolates her and tells her it's for her own good. He's jealous and accusatory when other people express an interest in her. He flirts with the maid and then denies her suspicions that the maid dislikes her. Gregory does everything in his power to make his wife feel mad enough to be institutionalized, because this would give him power of attorney over her, and, crucially, her aunt's belongings. It eventually emerges that he is, in fact, Sergius Bauer, the man who murdered her aunt in an effort to steal her precious jewelry. He targeted Paula in Italy, and planned the whole charade which would give him access to her aunt's house once again. It has been him all along— searching for the jewels in the attic and turning the gas lights on upstairs, which has, in reality, caused them to dim and brighten in the rest of the house. In the end, an investigator reopens the cold case of her aunt's death and validates her suspicions that her husband is, in fact, actively deceiving her. He is with her as the gas lights flicker and confirms that she is right about what she sees. Her husband is caught and tied up awaiting his arrest, and in his desperation, he asks Paula to use a knife to free him. In an act of righteous defiance, she tells him that she's probably too mad to know whether the knife is real before telling the police to take him away. Here's forensic psychologist Dr. Shiloh.
4: Essentially, gaslighting is twisting the truth enough to another person to make them feel like they're crazy or that they should be on board with what your truth is, even though that's not correct. Really what it is, is it's shaping someone else's view of the world and distorting their thinking and their cognitions and slowly and a little bit at a time. It's like the analogy of putting the frog in the boiling pot of water. So if you put a frog in a room temperature pot of water, he's gonna be fine if you turn the temperature up little by little. The desensitization in small steps, he's just gonna boil alive. But if you throw him in a boiling pot of water, of course he's gonna jump out. We all feel like we know we would jump out of that danger if we got ourselves in it or saw it. But if it's turned up little by little, we don't even know that it's happening to us.
2: We had a great drive and got on brilliantly. He had a terrific sense of humour and said all the things I wanted to hear about how he felt about me. We had intelligent, stimulating conversation and laughed a lot. When we got to Liverpool, he showed me an apartment that he said he was buying, and he claimed he'd put £14,000 deposit down on it, but would need to secure a mortgage by the end of March to buy it for £128,000. It was an impressive black window building right in the centre of the city near some amazing structures, and it looked stunning. He didn't take me inside to look at it, or even stop to point out exactly which apartment it was. In fact, it looked more like an office building instead of an apartment building. He suggested that as he didn't have a good credit rating, we might get a loan together to buy it. He talked animatedly about how much of an amazing deal the place was and how fabulous Liverpool was as a city. I was not into the idea, despite being impressed by the place. He said he would get a lawyer to draw up all the papers and it could be rented out and it would be an investment for our future together in Hong Kong. I could see that he was getting frustrated by my lack of enthusiasm for this plan. This was obviously the second phase of his scam and it was not working. On the way back to Manchester, Truman kept going on and on about the way that we could build our future by purchasing this property together. He was driving really fast and I was beginning to notice how out of control the whole situation was becoming. I gripped the door and wished that I could hit pause and collect myself. When we made it back to Manchester in one piece, Truman went into the shop to talk to his partner Jack and I went into the bookshop next door and looked at some great books about old films while he chatted to Jack. I made a purchase and went to sit in the car to read. Truman came out and called me in to talk to Jack about how to sort out the rest of the lease. He said that he'd paid £3,000 for the lease, but 12000 was still required for him to get the lease outright. He enthused that because I was his girl, and now his partner, that I should come and chat about the business side of things. I was a bit dubious, but I went into the meeting anyway. This was another attempt to get more money out of me by showing me how legitimate all of the negotiations were and how wonderful the shop would be when it was his. I remained very passive during the talk and refused to volunteer any assistance. Phase three of the scam, getting more money from me to pay for the shop lease also did not work.
3: Do you look back on this and see all the things that just weren't adding up?
2: Absolutely. In hindsight, I suspect that Truman was never renting the shop and Jack was in on the scam for a cut of the proceeds. It's so odd that Truman had just one small counter in this clothing shop when he'd not paid for the lease yet, and a house supposedly full of phone equipment. He was also apparently getting a sign made ready for the shop, which we were going to pick up on the first day. But why would he get a sign made when he'd not paid for the lease? None of it made sense, and I was starting to slowly notice.
3: Waters from Advocate Against Romance Scams shares her insight into why people fall victim to scams.
5: I think everybody wants to be loved and accepted, and especially if you get some people in a vulnerable spot of their life, you know, maybe they lost their spouse, even a child, they're lonely, looking for that companionship, and they will believe everything that they say or they'll want to believe it. And I feel that some of them almost need that in their life. We all need a little bit of that. And so they come into their lives at just the right time. And, you know, a lot of these men and women really latch onto the words. So that's very hard to, if you notice, you know, but they love me. Um, they called me this, they call me that they're going to do this for me. They latch onto the words. They could not understand that the words did not belong to the man in the picture they have a very hard time with that as well even my mom's friend since she's the one i had the most communication with in depth about this she would always say well that's brian wouldn't say that brian wouldn't do that brian would it wasn't brian that you spoke to it was a scammer and no brian wouldn't do that or brian wouldn't say that the real brian it's pretty fascinating how the psychological aspects can affect any person that's in the middle of this and it's It can affect anybody. It's not anybody with lower education. I've spoke to doctors, social workers, nurses. My mom's friend was a nurse. It's the higher educated too. It affects everybody. You cannot say it's not going to happen to me. You can never say that.
3: Helen is an Australian woman in her 50s. She met her scammer in 2017 on Facebook when he first contacted her on Messenger. She was curious and a little apprehensive, So she showed her kids his messages and they gave her the go-ahead and she decided to talk to him. Over an 18-month period, things really went south.
0: He was working overseas and all this sort of stuff. Then he tells me that he's a soldier. Then I'm like, oh, okay, you know, whatever. And then he's like, he's got a son and all that, but he's widowed and everything. And I'm like, that's sad and everything. So we're just normal chit chat for ages. And then he goes, oh, I've got some stuff that I'd like to send to you to look after till I've finished in a couple of weeks. And I'm like, didn't seem like a problem, you know, that was okay. So He got my address and phone number. Then he said he's got somebody who's bringing it to me. And I'm like, okay, you know, whatever. Then I get an email saying that they've been held up in customs and they need £4,000. And so I message him back, what the hell is going on? What's this all about? So I forwarded him the email and he's like, please help me, please help me. And so I sent half the money. I said, that's all I've got. And he said, oh, he'll work out what to do. And then I get like, no, you're going to be charged and all this if you don't pay the full amount. And I'm like, why me? And then I sent the balance of the money, but in doing so, I'm putting myself in debt, but I didn't realise. And then we just started talking again, like, but, uh, you know, all the promises and everything that I'll get paid as soon as he finishes in a couple of weeks. But then it got extended for another few weeks.
1: Go get a load of that happiness because happiness is healthy as we know it. Join us every week as we continue to provide you the best of health and fitness wellness updates from around the globe. Enjoy the show.
3: They started arguing and he would apologize. She said it felt like they were getting closer and they started to be intimate online. She would later find out that he was secretly recording her. She got an email saying that she needed to send him 60,000 pounds. She took out a loan for 10,000 Australian dollars and sent it to him. I'm like, "I can't get more."
0: The pressure, like... and then he's like, "You have to do something." And then I was inundated, like day and night with messages. You know, like on Messenger coming through, he'd email. He lost his Facebook, I don't know, about half a dozen times and made new ones up. He made one up using one of my pictures and his picture as his profile picture. I couldn't get any more. I was literally without food in the fridge. I had my phones cut off. I had my internet cut off because I was about to lose my house and everything. And then I started Googling his name and everything. And I came up with a fake profile using his name, but the opposite way around. And I sent it to him and I said, what the hell is this? And he's like, you're crazy in the head and all this sort of stuff. Carrying on and everything. And I go, Well, what is it? He goes, It's not me that's insurgents and all that trying to ruin me and everything like this.
3: He keeps asking for the rest of the 60,000 and he won't let it go.
0: And then one day we were sort of, sort of arguing about, like, I can't get any more money. And he goes, You should be quiet and just do what you're told you're a woman.
3: She was in so much debt that she was about to lose her house. She finally realised he was scamming her, and after telling him exactly what she thought of him one last time, she blocked him. Nevertheless, he persisted. He's since threatened to blackmail her if she didn't pay him the rest of the money he demanded using the video recordings he took of her online. He's tried to friend request her using multiple different names and accounts. He's found out the names of her children and the names of her ex-husband and threatened to send the video to them all. She believes she may have called his bluff by telling her sons in advance about the existence of the video. No one has received any so far. Here's a message from our sponsor, The Dating Service Happy Ever After. If Jules had been able to seek advice from Valentina before online dating, she may not have been caught in this trap.
6: Do you think dating and relationships are difficult and painful? Maybe you stopped believing that love will ever come your way, or you keep meeting Mr. Wrong over and over again? Would it not be nice to have someone who could help you make sense of it all? You're in luck, because now you can actually get a personal trainer for your heart. Valentina Tudos is a dating and relationship coach, and having her by your side is like having your very own fairy godmother. If you need to enhance your dating skills, manage your emotions, or deal with the complexities of online dating, Valentina is there every step of the way. Learn more about what it takes to find the love of your life and create the relationship of your dreams by visiting www.happyeverafter.asia and book your free discovery call today.
3: In Manchester, Truman was still in the process of trying to extract more money from my mother.
2: We left the shop with Jack to get some Chinese food to take back to the hotel. While Truman was in the shop, Jack casually asked me if I was helping Truman financially. I said yes, but before I could say anything else, Truman came back and the conversation stopped. I don't know if this was his way of trying to warn me or encourage me to give more. He also might have wanted to know how much I was actually giving Truman to see if he was getting the correct amount as a cut. We dropped Jack off at his home and drove off, so I'll never know. As we were driving back to the hotel, Truman asked if there was any way I could just give him £500 more for his rent on his house because his cheque had not come through from the project management job that he'd quit, and he needed the money for the phone shop sign as well. He said the cheque was late because he'd missed some days at work, and that he would have it within a week. He promised that he would transfer the money from the cheque straight to me. I said that I wasn't sure, as I really didn't want to do it. He reiterated how my financial support would help our future together, and he reminded me how strongly he felt about me. He was so skilled at coercing me that I finally agreed.
3: As I listen to this part of the story, I'm reminded of a time when I had my debit card details stolen. All of a sudden, one day, there was a huge chunk just gone from my account. I called my bank, and I told them I thought I'd been the victim of fraud, and they said it seemed I was right. I asked them how they could tell, and they told me that they could see all the declined transaction attempts. The thief had tried to take a huge sum of money, and then obviously it had been declined. Then they tried progressively smaller and smaller increments to see what was in my account and able to be stolen. Eventually, once the guess was right under what was available, the transaction went through. It seems like Truman was trying this same tactic. Starting big, his transaction was declined. But once he asked for smaller and smaller amounts, eventually he crossed a threshold that worked. There's a concept that relates to this in psychology called anchoring. If a customer is exposed to any high number, their willingness to pay more for an item increases. We see it in negotiation tactics all the time. If the initial price is high, somehow it anchors people's minds to the fact that this item must be worth a lot. The higher the anchor point, the higher the eventually agreed upon sum. Earlier that day, Truman had asked for £12,000, which my mother had balked at. So he set his sights lower and the anchor point that had already been set probably swayed her decision. He was using a strategy that's used in sales to swindle any amount out of her that he could.
2: We went to an ATM, but £400 was the daily limit on that machine. He was not satisfied with this, so he took me to another ATM and asked me to get the rest. Part of me believed that if I gave him more money, this would make him happier and have a knock-on effect of him treating me with more respect. Money in hand, Truman announced that he wanted to go to an all-night religious vigil for a couple of hours to commune with God and prepare for 2011 in a spiritual way. He said that I should be happy that I'd lent my money to a man who believes in God because he would have to pay it back or he would be judged. I was certainly disappointed to spend New Year's Eve alone, but because I was tired from the night before and I didn't like his friends very much, I agreed to wait for him while he went out for a couple of hours. I went to bed and fell asleep. I woke at 1.30am and he wasn't there. I sent him a text saying I'd made a mistake. I really needed that money and I couldn't afford for him to have it. Unsurprisingly, there was no response to my texts or calls. I woke up at 6.30am and was horrified because he was still gone, with the hire car which was uninsured and registered in my name. My mind played back to our previous destinations, meeting with Jack amongst the clothes racks over lease money, listening to a pitch in front of a black glass apartment building in Liverpool, waiting outside of the pawn shop, reading a different name on the ID card in the bar and on and on. My fear of being liable for the uninsured rental car made something click. I now definitively understood that I was being played for money, and this was all a scam. I felt truly sick. If I lost the car, it could cost me an absolute fortune. So I called my friend in Australia, and I told her about what had been going on in the current situation. And I just realised that Because I was leaving for Hong Kong that afternoon, it was really urgent and I had to get the car back as quickly as possible. My friend suggested that I call the Australian Consulate or the Manchester Police and ask for their help and advice. She gave me the strength to stay focused and do what I needed to do to try and get the car back and ensure that I made it out of this situation in one piece. As calmly as I could, I packed my things. I knew that I had to be careful, because I was alone in a city I didn't know, and now at the mercy of a man who was clearly only in it for what he could get out of me.
3: It can often happen that realisations like this come crashing in all at once. It seems like the fog has been lifted, and all of a sudden what was invisible becomes suddenly visible. It's almost like a threshold of disbelief has been reached, and anything past that becomes so obvious that it can't be ignored. For my mother, suddenly the red flags were flying high and clear. Here's Dr. Shiloh talking about the honeymoon phase in relationships, red flags, and how to act on instinct.
4: Some of the red flags that I would look for in a romance scam would be listening to your gut. And is this too good to be true too fast? And I have worked with clientele who exclusively engage in just online relationships, especially for friends and then potentially romantic relationships. And I see them repeating a lot of the same patterns every time. When we feel good, we easily dismiss the bad stuff. And that happens even in real life, regular relationships as they develop, right? That's why we say love is blind. And there are these phases of a relationship, and the first phase, which we call the lust or the honeymoon phase, is when certain chemicals in your brain are actually being produced that make you feel good. And when that wears off, that's when the honeymoon phase wears off. Our serotonin and norepinephrine levels are balancing out, and we're starting to come back to reality and say, oh, okay, this person has this quirk, or there's this thing that we need to compromise on more, that I'm not just going to look past. And in a scam, people too often get scammed before they even know it when they're still in that honeymoon lust phase. And then it just crushes your world because it's not this natural evolution like an in real life relationship and how that would go. Everyone's trust level is different, but we don't listen to our intuition enough. And when things don't match up, we need to unfortunately not be so polite and maybe follow up on some of those gut instincts with the person.
3: In the next episode, it becomes clear that my mum is in danger and she has to get out. She's in complete damage control mode, trying to make sure she isn't liable for the cost of a stolen car, but most importantly, trying to get safely home. Make sure you listen to the next episode.
4: This will conclude the episode. Thanks for tuning in. If you like what you hear, please leave a comment and subscribe. Thank you.